Good morning. That was weak. Good morning. It, it is it's good to see uh, all of you this morning. It's good to be back. Uh, I've had a, a really sweet vacation and uh, some refreshment, uh, both physically and spiritually, and I'm excited to be back. I'm telling you, I am really, really excited about what God has for us for the remainder of this summer. That hurts just to say it, the remainder of this summer. Um, but look, we're going to get into it this morning, and I, I'm trusting that God's going to work in powerful ways. So if you have your Bibles, and I trust you do, take them and open them up to Jonah. We are launching into a series on Jonah this morning. I've entitled it Gone Fishing. It's an appropriate summer title, I think. And, and this really is the story of how God goes fishing for lost sinners. And you'll see the subtitle there in front of you on the screen, God's Relentless Pursuit of Rebels. The story of Jonah is a fascinating story that has been popular for many, many hundreds and thousands of years. The early Christians counted it as one of the most important stories in all of the Old Testament. They referred to it often in the the early church, likely because Jesus Christ himself referred to the story of Jonah in the Gospels, Matthew and Luke. Jesus refers to Jonah, and he refers to it as if, by the way, just in case you didn't know, as if it was a factual event, as if it was actual history that's taken place, not some myth, not something that had been made up, not some spiritual analogy to communicate truth. This is something as far-fetched as it may seem to our, our minds actually happened. This book is filled with surprises. It is filled with powerful, life-altering truths. In fact, this book helps us explore the inner working of the Christian heart and the Christian life. Jonah becomes, in many ways for us, a window into the heart of every Christian and a picture of what can happen in the heart of even the most mature followers of Jesus Christ. It's a startling picture of reality. It's a startling display of the human heart and what it's capable of, even in the heart that is following God. You see, Jonah was a man in the ministry. He was a prophet called by God to proclaim his word. And by the way, he had an incredibly successful ministry by earthly standards, He was used greatly by God to proclaim his word to his people, but what we see with Jonah is that he became somewhere along the line absorbed with himself. He lost sight of his purpose. He lost sight in many ways of God himself. Behind the veneer of a public ministry lay an intense private battle as the deep wells of selfish desire, love of comfort, and resentment toward God repeatedly erupt in his life. That's what we will see throughout this small book. This book is so fascinating. It begins with Jonah running from God, and it ends with Jonah arguing with God. You might think as you go through this story, and maybe you're familiar with it already in many ways, you might think as you read the story, man, Jonah was a complete mess. This guy couldn't get his act together. What a huge hypocrite this guy was. How could he do this? But he did, and so do we. Alexander White, the famous writer and preacher, wrote these words about Jonah as he reflected on his own personal ministry in the pulpit. He said this, When I watch the working of my own heart, this is what I am compelled to write. I am Jonah. The greatest blessing that you will receive in this story comes from understanding that fundamental reality that you and I are Jonah. We are no different from him. He is no different from us. Yes, our circumstances may look different and may be different, but our hearts and oftentimes our response to God is exactly the same as Jonah's. It's frightening to think that we, like Jonah, can avoid the God we profess to serve. And this, I can just tell you personally, this week studying this book has been a wake-up call to my own heart. It's been a refreshing reminder of the deceptiveness, deceptiveness of the human heart. You see, what's so frightening about this is all of us are aware of this, aren't we? I think this is so, so pertinent for our hearts. We can play the part convincingly of a follower of Christ 
and even be a follower of Jesus Christ while our selfish hearts are actually growing cold towards the God we say we love. I wonder today if some of us are like Jonah and we don't even know it. Suddenly our hearts have been distanced from God. The intimacy of communion and fellowship with Him is not what it once was, nor is it where it ought to be. And some of us need to really, really pay close attention to what God would have for us this morning through this little book and through this man. You see, Jonah certainly was not aware of how far he had fallen and how far he had walked away from God. At least, at least for a while, I believe he came to the recognition of his heart after all of these events. You see, I believe that this book, though there is no author named in this book, was actually written by Jonah. It's autobiographical in nature. And sometime after all of these events occurred, Jonah could look back. Isn't this the case in our lives so often? We can look back at what God has done, what he's brought us through, and what he has taught us, and we can reflect with clarity upon what God was trying to teach us. And if this was written by Jonah, as I believe it was, Jonah, with self-deprecating humility, paints a real and raw picture of his rebellion against God. And that's helpful for us. It's helpful for us to see a man be transparent and genuine and authentic and vulnerable about how he can be so distanced from God, even though he had such a public ministry. But the greatest picture he paints, by it's not of himself. The greatest picture he paints is of his God and of our God. He paints this magnificent picture of himself pushing back against God, fleeing from God, but the picture he presents to us of God is a God who relentlessly pursues us in our rebellion. And isn't that such a marvelous truth in the Christian life? He paints this picture of a God who out of deep love and compassion has mercy on sinners. A God who runs after us in his grace even when we're running far and fast from him. This is a story about how God comes after us in our sin and in our rebellion and how he longs to use us regardless of how far we may have fallen in our past. And it begins by asking us this penetrating question that I want to propose to you this morning. When God pursues your heart, how do you respond? When God pursues you, how do you respond? When God calls you, what will you do? When God interrupts your plans, when God interrupts your comfort, when God interrupts your priorities... Will you and will I trust and follow him regardless of the costs? And to answer this question, I want to set up our text with just the first three verses, and I want to draw from this three warnings to help us embrace God's calling on our lives. Three warnings to help us embrace God's calling on our lives. Look at the text with me, Jonah verses 1 through 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. The first warning I want to drive from this text is this, don't rest in God's gifts. Don't rest in God's gifts. And this is a warning that should really be relevant in our Western culture where comfort and ease and the gifts of God are bountiful in our lives. And if we are like Jonah, the question for us is, what was this guy really like? Who is this man, Jonah? Scripture does not say much about him, but what it does say gives us a glimpse of his life, likely his ministry, and his heart. This statement, don't rest in God's gifts, really summarizes the life that Jonah had come to embrace. Though it may not have characterized his entire life of following God, it certainly characterizes where he was at at this point when God calls him into a different ministry. You see, somewhere down the line, Jonah became comfortable. 
Again, we don't know much about him, but what we see, the picture painted for us of Jonah, I think we can relate to in very personal ways. Jonah is the son, as the text tells us, of a man named Amittai. And this phrase and this name is mentioned only one other time in Scripture. In 2 Kings chapter 14, you'll see it on the screen behind me, verses 25 and 27, we get a glimpse of the time in which Jonah served, the king to whom he was devoted. And look at what it says. Uh, he restored the border of Israel from Lebohamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under the heaven. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. We read here in 2 Kings that Jonah experienced something that most prophets dreamed of experiencing, proclaiming the word of God, predicting the future, and having it come to pass. But beyond that, he foretold something good that was going to happen to the nation of Israel. And then in his own lifetime, he saw it quickly happen. This was no small prophecy that Jonah was called to proclaim by the will of God and by the Spirit of God. Jonah announced that the borders of Israel would be expanded in a time where Israel was coming out of great oppression, where their borders have been pressed back in by neighboring and surrounding nations. All of a sudden, God is saying, I'm going to prosper and bless you. Your enemies are going to be pushed back. So you see, God is pronouncing a blessing on the nation of Israel through his servant Jonah. Jonah becomes the mouthpiece of God's deliverance at this critical time in Israel's history. He, in a sense, is used by God to save them. Think about what this would do for Jonah's reputation. He would have lasting fame, accolades, popularity, He spoke, and it came to pass, and not only did it come to pass, it resulted in our blessing, in our fortune, and in our prosperity. And by the way, any time a prophet was to be tested by the Word of God, the ultimate test, according to Deuteronomy 13, was that the prophecy came true. Jonah had been given some wonderful gifts from the Lord in his lifetime. He, he was allowed to minister to the people of God in a time of relative prosperity and blessing. And, and I think if we just reflect on what God had given to Jonah, we might be able to insert ourselves into the story and reflect on the same kinds of gifts that God has given us. Notice this, just four gifts I want to just highlight that God had given to Jonah. First was his salvation. And that's, this is the greatest gift of all. Jonah has, was born and raised in Gath Hefer. He was likely born into a godly home, raised with the knowledge of the truth, taught the scriptures from an early age, and likely he quickly developed a love for God and a heart for ministry. He was given the gift of salvation. He was called into covenant with this God. The second gift that I think he was given was this, service. Second Kings tells us, and it highlights this, that Jonah was the servant of Yahweh, the servant of God. Now, He was called, as all servants of God are, to advance God's kingdom through the obedience to God's will. But this term, servant of God, is one that functions in the Old Testament more like a title. It has a a deeper, deeper and richer meaning than at first glance might appear. You see, throughout the Old Testament, it serves as a title for someone who has been specially set apart by God for a very specific purpose, to advance God's kingdom in a very significant way. It's a title maybe that's familiar when you think of Isaiah 52 and 53, the suffering servant. And and if you want to understand what that meant, that he had been called and set apart to serve God as a prophet, listen to what Amos chapter 7 says. It's right behind you on the screen there. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. That in itself is a fascinating statement. What a gift and privilege Jonah had been given. He belonged to a unique group of men who stood in the presence of God, who heard the powerful, unmistakable voice of God pressing in upon their soul. 
calling them not only to hear and heed and obey, but to declare to God's people. He was called to be a servant of God. What a gift that was for him. The third gift that God had given him for sure was success. Second Kings likely speaks to Jonah's ministry prior to the events of the book of Jonah. So Jonah's prophecy and his popularity would have happened before God called him away. This is no small truth. Because that means his ministry was an outrageous success. Prophets were not always loved in Israel. In fact, most of the prophets were hated and many of them were actually killed. But not Jonah. Jonah gets the blessing and privilege and gift of preaching in a time of Israel's prosperity. He was loved and adored. He would have uh, often, by the way, prophets bore a message of judgment and condemnation. But here we see at least all we know that Jonah declared for the people of God was a message of blessing. He had salvation. He had service to God as a gift. He had success given to him by God. And finally, he had stability in his life, in his ministry. Surely, people of his hometown of Gath Heifer enjoyed his preaching. He would have been known for a, as being a powerful proclaimer of God's words. He was established as a gifted communicator. He had a reputation as a much-loved and deeply respected teacher of God's Word. Established as a legitimate prophet, he enjoyed the luxury of loyalty by God's people. If we were to put this in contemporary terms, he was a pastor or a preacher who was on high demand. I mean, if you looked at his preaching calendar, it would have been jam-packed for a couple years out. His books would have been bestsellers. He would have had hundreds of thousands of Facebook friends and Twitter followers. This guy had a fantastic life. He enjoyed a good life doing good work in a good place. And listen, when you have the gifts and blessings of God, those are a great thing, aren't they? Every good and perfect gift comes from above. It comes from God's hands. We are to enjoy all the gifts that God has given us, yet there are times when, because of the gifts of God, our focus is drawn away from God, and we get comfortable where God has us. Isn't that true? We're comfortable. We're complacent. Life is good. We start cruising along. You see, what we see in Jonah is really a lesson for us. He has all these gracious gifts from God, including an effective public ministry, yet what we know about Jonah is that he stumbles and falls flat on his face. What can we learn from Jonah? Let me just give you a couple things. First is this, never let the gift take the place of the giver. The good gifts that God gives us are ours to enjoy, but they're always, look, the greatest source of satisfaction doesn't come from the gifts themselves. It's not the gift that should give us peace and comfort and rest. The gifts point us back to the gracious God who gives us all things. I, I recently I was reflecting on this story. I had a chance to tell it somewhere else about, uh, and I think I've shared it here before, but let me share it again. Uh, I'll never forget, uh, I was in the habit of, of coming home from our church office, and in our church office, we have a bowl of candy. Some of you have seen that and have rated it sufficiently. And uh, I, every day I'd go home from the office, I'd grab two candies for my, my two young kids. And, you know, it started maybe, you know, my son Josh is maybe three at the time. Maybe, maybe, is that bad? I'm giving you three-year-old candy every day. Um, and my daughter would be five, and, and I'd come in the door, and, and they'd just run to me, and I'd give them a piece of candy, and it was fantastic. But over time, you want to know what I noticed? As I came in the door, anytime I came in the door, my son in particular would rush to the door and say, Dad, where's my candy? And I'd say, well, well, well it's nice to see you too, son. I, I love you too, son. Okay, okay, where's my candy, Dad? And, and, I, and I just, I, I was reflecting on that, thinking, you know, wouldn't it be great, right, if, if my son came running to the door and said, oh, Father, gracious Father, who gives me good gifts and is so kind and loving towards me, and even if you never gave me a single piece of candy ever again, oh, I would love you with all my heart, Daddy. I, I said that to him, and he said, yeah, okay, where's my candy? <laughs> and I just, how often are we like that with God? 
God is so gracious and so kind and he lavishes great gifts upon us and so often we just we run for the gift and we, we forget to reflect upon the character of God who's so gracious and kind to even think of us in the first place and give us, give us what we don't deserve. A gift becomes a God when it becomes more important than the giver. Let me say that again. A gift becomes a God when it becomes more important than the giver. It kicks God off the throne and we begin to worship the thing, the possession, the person, the prestige. I mean, you just, you can fill in the blank there. You, you say, well, well, what might that look like in, in my life? Well, just ask yourself this question. What can I not live without? Just let that sit for a second. If God took away blank, I would fall apart. That's, that's the thing in your life, the gift that God maybe has given you that could, if you're not careful, or is, if you don't even realize it right now, the God that you may be serving. Second thing, not only uh, not let the gift take the place of the giver, how about this truth we need to learn from Jonah? Now is what matters most. Now is what matters most. You just think about that in the context of Jonah. Listen, past privileges... Okay? Past gifts, past blessings, fruitful service, effective ministry, past obedience can never take the place of present obedience to God. He, Jonah could rely, he could look back, well, I've been faithful, right? I, I've, I've done the, God's word, I had an effective ministry, and, and maybe he could lean into that for some sort of peace and comfort and rest. Look what I've done, look what I've done. And, and, and instead, failing in the moment to obey what God was calling him to then and now. You know what's interesting as I think of Jonah? Jonah, I believe, never planned on ending up this way. Nobody ever does, do they? But before we throw Jonah under the bus, let's ask ourselves the same questions. Am I living with only the memory of past obedience in my life? Am I kind of riding and coasting in the Christian life because I can look back at how I was used, the ministries I was a part of, the effectiveness of my discipleship, my commitment to Christ way in the past? Is that what I'm riding upon? Is that the only memory I have that's positive in my Christian life? How about this? Am I substituting my past spiritual record, my past spiritual resume for present submission to the will of God? When you see the gracious gifts of the Lord, here's the reality. When you reflect on all that God has given you, and, and this should have been the case with Jonah, when he saw the blessings that have been lavished upon him, listen, isn't this true in our life? When we look back at our life and we can see that God has been so faithful, God has been so kind, when we are so undeserving, doesn't that only serve to magnify the shame of our present disobedience? See, it's one thing to start it's another thing to continue, and yet another to finish. Life was good for Jonah until God interrupted. Warning number two, don't resist God's word. Don't resist God's word. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, look at this in verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, you need to put yourself in Jonah's sandals for just a minute and try to imagine the magnitude of what God was asking for him and what this meant for him. God has given you all these amazing gifts, sweet blessings, and now he's telling you to leave it all behind. Leave the people you love, leave the place you love, leave the life of comfort and stability and security, and now move to a new location, go and minister to a people you don't know and a people you don't like. And by the way, instead of bringing a message of blessing that's going to bring you popularity, bring a message of judgment and condemnation and God's wrath. Instead of stability, expect instability and uncertainty. 
For Jonah, this all seems like such a massive mistake. Does God know what he's really doing? This is such a huge loss to him personally. Can you feel that for him? I mean, we got to have some sympathy for Jonah. He's got a pretty good life, and he's asked to leave it all behind. This is going to hurt and hurt bad. There's no doubt that Jonah was caught up in the busyness of life and ministry. Maybe he's touring around, he's preaching, he's ministering to people in need. He's God's spokesperson after all, and God is continuing to use him to bless the people of God. He's busy, busy, busy. But activity is a poor substitute for obedience. And God's call revealed how far his heart really was from him. Even though, this is the scary thing, even though his hands were busy in ministry, his heart was far from God. You say, well, well, I'm busy, you know, I'm, 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 I'm too busy to, to follow what God wants me to do. I'm busy at work, I'm busy with my family, I'm busy in my community, I'm busy, busy, busy. Look, activity is a poor substitute for obedience to God's will. This past year, um, famous missionary Elizabeth Elliot went home to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. Elizabeth, El- Elizabeth Elliot and her husband Jim Elliot uh, were missionaries to the tribes of Ecuador back in the 1950s, and in, in 1956, Jim Elliot was killed by the tribe he was sharing the gospel to, him and uh, a few other men who were with him ministering the gospel. Elizabeth Elliot decided that she would take her young child back with her to the very same people who killed her husband and minister the gospel. And at the time, people thought that she was absolutely crazy, that she was out of her mind, but she believed with all of her heart that God was calling her. Though she had, back in America, a life of relative ease and comfort and peace, she was being provided for and cared for, she believed with all of her heart that God was pulling her away from that to go to a place that was not going to be comfortable, that in fact was going to bring back painful memories, emotional psychological, but she believed with all of her heart that God wanted her to go, and so she went, and God did a marvelous thing through her ministry and the ministry of others who went with her. God began to save these tribe members one at a time, so much so that that tribe became an outreach post for the neighboring villages and tribes. She refused to let the good gifts in her life become idols that kept her from following God's will for her. Jonah could not say the same thing at this point in his life. And let me ask you, what if God called you away from your comfortable home? What if God right now was calling you away from your comfortable career, your financial stability and security? What if God was calling you to cut back on your hours at work so that you might be a more effective minister of the gospel to the people in your community? What if God was telling you not to take that promotion or that career advancement opportunity so that you could be where you are and minister more effectively right now with your time and resources? What if God was calling you to sell some of the things you own, the things that you love, the things that provide you some rest and satisfaction? He was calling you to begin to give it sacrificially for the benefit and good of other people. What if God is calling you this morning to sacrifice something in order to serve him? You see, when God interrupts our lives, he exposes our idols, doesn't he? Nothing that he gives you in this life is yours forever. Sometimes we don't know how far our hearts are from him until he steps in and calls us to make a sacrifice. And that's exactly what happens with Jonah. God's word came to Jonah with such force and directness that there was no doubt that God was speaking to him. You see, being a prophet meant that Jonah received direct revelation from God. He spoke to God as man speaks with a friend. And I want you to see something in how God spoke to Jonah in verse 2. You'll notice just three simple things. First, it was clear. Arise and go. There was no mistaking the call on Jonah's life. It was crystal clear. Notice this secondly. Not only was it clear, it was specific. Go to Nineveh, that great city. Nineveh was indeed a great city, both by population and by its reputation. 
It was a city known for its wickedness. It was a city known for its terror of other people and its torture of people. It praised itself for its wickedness. It was, if I can draw a parallel, a similar place in many regards in its selfishness and in its hatred of God, a Sodom and Gomorrah. God's word came, not only was it clear, not only was it specific, notice this, it was weighty. He tells Jonah, go, go, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Why? For their evil has come up before me. That The idea of the word evil is this, not only was their evil known by all those around, their evil was known by God himself. There is a sense in which this one word evil can have the meaning of calamity. And so, so maybe what's happening here is God is saying there's been some sort of catastrophe, some sort of calamity that was a result of their own wickedness and evil. And God has seen it and he knows it. And what he does is he's sending Jonah into the midst of this chaos and calamity, into the midst of this evil and wickedness, and he's calling it out for what it is. It was weighty. You know, when God speaks, it's never trivial, and it always requires faith. Sometimes disobedience, by the way, is a result of failing to understand God's word, right? Sometimes our disobedience comes out of genuine ignorance. We simply don't understand what God is saying, but that is not the case with Jonah. Jonah did not need to go into his library and pull out some commentaries to figure out the meaning of what God was trying to communicate to him. It was so profoundly clear, which makes his disobedience so profoundly devastating. His difficulty was not intellectual. His difficulty was moral. You see, God spoke clearly, and Jonah knew exactly what it meant for him. The problem was that the plan of God crashed head-on into the plan of Jonah. Jonah had his own plans, his own ambitions, his own dreams and desires to fulfill. He had his own ideas of how things should be and how he could best serve God. And how does that, often does that sound so much like our own hearts? But you see, that's typically how God interrupts our life. We don't hear directly from God in the same way that Jonah did. None of us are prophets and hear the voice of God speaking to us like he did. But we do have God's word that comes at us like a ton of bricks, don't we? We have God's living word. We hold it in our hands. We study it. We read it. And through here, through this book, we have the voice of God that speaks into the deepest recesses of our hearts. It is living and active. And the Bible, isn't this true? The Bible has a way of interrupting our selfish ambitions and desires, doesn't it? It has a way of interrupting our comfortable lifestyle, our complacent and apathetic approach to following Jesus Christ. It exposes sin and selfishness in our lives by calling us to set our eyes on things above, not things below. It confronts and it wages war alongside the Spirit of God with our flesh that longs for fulfillment and satisfaction in the things of this world, in the sins of this world, apart from Jesus Christ. The Bible confronts us in such powerful ways. It tells us to store up treasures in heaven, not on earth. It tells us to respond to people with humility and gentleness rather than pride and harshness. It calls us to give generously to others and to the church rather than hoard our resources for ourselves. God will use his word to confront us. This is why it's so important that we're constantly in God's word. A, a Christian who is not in God's word is missing the convicting power of the spirit of God because the spirit of God works in conjunction with the word of God. God has another way of interrupting our lives. Oftentimes, uh, God interrupts our lives through people through their decisions and their actions, secondary means that God uses to interrupt our lives. Sometimes God uses providence, circumstances that are beyond our control, unexpected events that radically alter the course of your life. Maybe it's a lost job. Maybe it's a death in the family. Maybe it's a child who's rebelling against Jesus Christ. We're left asking questions, what is God doing? 
And let me ask you that question this morning. When God interrupts your life, when God interrupts your comfort, what exactly is God doing? The simple answer is this. Amongst many other things, here's what he's doing. He's calling you to follow him in a new way. He's calling you to grow. He's stretching you beyond your perceived limits. He's pressing you to places he knows will be for your good and for the glory of his name. We have a tendency in our lives to resist God's word when the personal costs feel too great, don't we? We do this kind of a a, a weighing L. We we know that God wants us to change. We know that God wants uh, us to give up a certain sin. We know that God wants us to go and share the gospel with this individual. We know that God is calling us into this ministry. And then we weigh it out with, well, how much is this going to cost me? I mean, what about my time? What about my effort? What about my reputation? What about my resources? And so often we're left saying, I'm sorry, God, the cost is far too great for me. And Jonah finds that the cost of going into this wicked city, Nineveh, is too great for him. Nineveh was in the heart of Assyria. And if you know anything about the the nation of Assyria, you know this. They were a people who were fierce and ferocious. They were God-haters, and they hated the people of God. Again, there were people known for their terror and their torture. Their evil had risen up to the Lord. Assyria would, in later times, overrun the people of God. If I could paint a scenario for you that might be helpful, imagine you lived in Egypt, and imagine that you were a Christian there, and imagine that people were being beheaded that you knew and you loved for following Jesus Christ, and then God one day called you to the side, and he said, I want to talk to you for a second. I want you to leave your comfortable job you have here, and I want you to go into the heart of ISIS, and I want you to tell them that I'm not happy with their sin, and that I will judge them for their wickedness unless they turn and repent. You see, what we wrestle with is the same thing that Jonah wrestles with. These people aren't deserving. They're too wicked, God. You should just punish them. Why do I have to leave my life of comfort for people like that? It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. And to go to these people would be costly for Jonah. It would cost him, yes, his comfort. It may, by the way, though he doesn't know how this is all going to turn out, it may cost him his life. And here's what I think is really on his heart as well. It's going to cost him his reputation. Now, you know what I mean? Like everybody's already like, oh, Jonah, you're the best. You're the best prophet we've ever had. Yeah, and then, the, and then he's like, well, I've got to go to Nineveh, and I've got I to tell them to repent. Like, well, we thought you were one of the cool prophets. Pfft, you're going there? You see, his reputation is just going to tank cost is so great for him. We wrestle with these issues in our life, right? When God calls us somewhere, it can often cost us something. What is it for you? What's the personal sacrifice that God is asking you to make that's causing you to resist God's word? Is it your safety? Maybe it's your security and the comfort that you derive from that. Maybe it's the comfort of the the luxuries of, of possessions And all the trappings of life, maybe, maybe for you, like it is for so many of us, it's your reputation. What will people think of me? How will they respond to me? How will they treat me if they know that I'm a follower of Jesus? Warning, don't resist God's word. Finally, warning, don't run from God's presence. Don't run from God's presence. Verse 3, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and he found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare. He went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. You'll notice the repetition, this idea that Jonah feels the need deep down to flee, to run, to get as far away from the presence of the Lord that he can. And here, perhaps, is the most frightening truth of all of the book of Jonah. We can be so close to God and fall so far from God. Jonah's brilliant idea is to get as far away from God as possible. 
For him, that meant getting away from his responsibility to speak on behalf of God, to minister the word to the people of God. You see, God's presence was intimately tied to God's people in the Old Testament. And so Jonah, if you can just capture his logic here, he, he, he feels like his pre- the presence of God is most powerful in his life when he's with the people of God. That's when God shows up. That's when God gives him a message. That's when he must communicate to God's people. So if I can just get myself away from God's people, then maybe not only will they leave me alone, God will leave me alone. Tarshish is in the exact opposite direction of Nineveh. Many people believe that Tarshish is modern-day Spain. Now, Jonah knows, by the way, he, he's, Jonah's no idiot, okay? He is schooled, likely, in the school of the prophets. He's been brought up under the tutelage of Elijah and Elisha. He has had the Word of God and theology poured into him, and so he knows, he knows the truth of God's Word intimately. He knows, he knows that you cannot flee from the presence of God. He's aware of what Psalm 139 verses 7 and 8 say. Notice on the screen behind me. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. He understands what theologians call God's omnipresence, that God is everywhere. So what is he talking about? Is he talking about fleeing from God's omnipresence? No, he's talking about what theologians of old used to call fleeing from God's felt presence. He's fleeing from his responsibility to God. He's fleeing from intimacy and fellowship with God. He's fleeing from the place of prayer and the place of abiding in God's word. He's fleeing from the place of living under the will of God, under the law of God. The term can actually carry the idea of fleeing from the face of God. He no longer wants to face his God. You know, what Jonah did is so often what we do, isn't it? When we choose our sin and selfishness over obedience to God's word, we flee from the fellowship and intimacy with God and with God's people. Isn't that true? One of the greatest markers that you're living in sin is when you find yourself distancing yourself from your personal spiritual disciplines, right? Uh, reading the Bible and praying. And, and when you see yourself distancing yourself from God's people, you know that there's a problem. There's sin happening in your life and in your heart. We run from the means of grace that God gives us. All of these things are a gift of his grace given to us to draw us closer to him, not push us away from him. I was thinking this morning of Proverbs 18.1. Again on the screen behind me. Listen to this. This is such a powerful little verse. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. When you isolate yourself, the intent is this. I don't want anybody around me in my life telling me what I should do. I don't want that kind of conviction. I don't want that kind of accountability. I want to isolate myself from all of that. And the intent there is this. I want what I want. I want what I want. And notice this, he breaks out against all sound judgment. He won't adhere to godly counsel. He he won't adhere to what is intended to produce change in him and produce conviction. And you know, the sad reality is we never just run away from God, we always run to something else. Tarshish is a place we run to escape reality and responsibility, just like Jonah. It's a place where we believe or act as if God is not present. We all have our own desires and inclinations. Maybe, maybe the place you run to to escape reality and responsibility is to a bottle and you binge drink until you've, you've just numbed yourself to the responsibilities and to the conviction of the Spirit of God. Maybe the place you run to is drugs or maybe it's, it's uh, sex outside of marriage. Maybe it's a business or a career that you just engulf your life in and surround yourself with. Maybe it's an adulterous relationship. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's a romance novel. Maybe it's video games. Maybe it's TV. Maybe in entertainment. Maybe it's maybe it's it's always something you run to to escape what you know God is calling you to. 
That's your Tarshish. And sadly, it can be so subtle. It can be so subtle that we don't even see it happening. We don't see the drift away from fidelity and faithfulness to God. And we're told here in this verse that Jonah went down to Joppa. This is the port where major trade routes would have connected and he would have been able to find a ship that would take him as far away as possible. And that's exactly what he found, a ship going to Tarshish. And notice what it says. So he paid the fare and went on board. We're told that Jonah paid the price and he got on the boat. He doesn't know that at the same time he is paying the physical price for this fare, he is paying a deep and rich spiritual price for his disobedience. Perhaps the tension that he was living in as he meandered about Joppa and he was trying to connect with people and find out, as, uh, you know, where, where are you going? How far can you take me? How much will this cost me? Perhaps the tension and the anxiety in his heart was relieved as he paid the price. Maybe it cost him his entire life savings to get as far away as possible. And maybe as he put that money down on the table and went on board deep down into the ship, he breathed a sigh of relief, saying to himself, ah, this is worth it. Sin always feels worth it at the time and in the moment. But the truth is, it will always take us further than we wanted to go. It will always keep us longer than we were willing to stay. And it will always, mark this down, it will always cost us more than we are willing to pay. The price for sin is steep. Went on board to go to Tarshish, notice this, with them. Such a small phrase, but here we see is a man who has decided to hold hands with the world rather than herald God's truth to the world. And sadly, the God whom Jonah was running from is, this is so ironic, the God whom he was running from is the one in whom, whose presence there is fullness of joy, and at his right hand, Scripture says, are pleasures forevermore. God's saying, look, I can give you so much more than what you think you'll find when you flee me. The very thing our heart longs for is the very thing it will never find when we turn our back on God. And Jonah had forsaken that and was headed straight towards the storm of God's wrath. How often do we too choose the storm of sin rather than the joy of obedience? I know it's so true in my own heart. I see it time and time again. I think this is going to be better. I think this is going to be more satisfying. I think this is going to be for my good. And it ends up being for my destruction, for my hurt, for my pain. Choose to sin, choose to suffer. Choose obedience and choose blessing. Sin always has a price to pay. Sin will cost you your joy. It'll cost you your growth. It'll cost you sometimes your family. It could cost you your job. It could cost you your ministry. It could cost you your spouse. And sometimes, even sometimes, it can cost you your life. And if that's not heavy enough for you to consider, if that's not powerful enough to prevent you from running headlong into sin like Jonah, consider this, it cost God His only Son. You know, the human condition hasn't changed. We, like Jonah, are prone to sin, aren't we? My daughter, Karis, had a teacher this past year who uh, used this phrase when speaking to the class as they were excelling and doing good and they were responding well to teaching and, and, and obeying and all of these things. She would say, Karis, you're on the top of the mountain. And then when the kids would be disobedient or disrespectful or maybe not uh, up to, to par and where they should be, she'd say, you're falling off the top of the mountain. You're falling off the top. And I, I, we'd sit down with, with Karis as she's doing her homework. And sometimes I would jokingly say, Karis, man, you have fallen off the top. You are in the bottom of the sea. Girl, you got to get up out of there. What we learn from Jonah is that we can be standing on the top of the mountain and then fall quite literally, as we'll see, down into the depths of the sea. Two final lessons that you might want to jot down, and I'm just going to reinforce in many ways what I just said. The first lesson of the book of Jonah for you and for I is this. Just get this. I am Jonah. 
I am Jonah. My heart has the same tendencies and inclinations. I can become content and comfortable and complacent. I can be selfish and entitled. I can rest in God's gifts. I can resist God's word, and I can run from God's presence. That is who we are, isn't it? The second lesson is more important. We learn this from Jonah. Jonah's God is our God. Jonah's God is our God. Our God relentlessly pursues rebels. Our God relentlessly seeks and saves the lost. That is who our God is. He is faithful even when we're not. He is filled with mercy and compassion and love and grace. It is who He is. The story of Jonah is, in one sense, the story of you and I, but more than that, the story of Jonah is the story of Jonah's great God and our great God who never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he relentlessly will pursue his people for the glory and fame of his name. Is he pursuing you this morning? We see God pursuing us most as we look at the cross of Jesus Christ. God would send a fish to go get Jonah, but God would send his own son to go and get you and me. We were running as fast and as furiously away from God as Jonah was. We were fleeing the presence of God. We wanted nothing to do with God, and yet God, God saw us in our condition, and he stepped out of heaven, off of his throne, into this earth. He came after you and he came after me. He walked all the way to the cross where he would give his own life that he might rescue lost sinners, where he would pay our price. Sin has a price, its name is Jesus Christ. And if you put your faith and trust in him, you can have the reward that you don't deserve. You can have the gift of God's grace. You can have eternal life in him. Don't rest, don't resist. Don't run. Embrace God's call. Return into his loving arms. That's who he is.